Today we begin a new series in Romans chapters 9 through 11. If you have your Bibles, uh, take them out and turn there. Romans 9. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy to give you one or loan you one. Give you one if you don't have a Bible. This is our gift to you to take and to read uh, as God's Word. And if uh, you do have a Bible and you just forgot it today, uh, feel free to just raise your hand and one of our hosts will put a Bible in your hand and you can return that on your way out uh, from today. For the majority of you, Uh, who have been at Grace for at least the last couple of years, you'll note that this is the third time that we're in the book of Romans. We're actually starting section three of this grand letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the capital city of the world at that time. And we're traveling through about once each year a significant section of that letter. You'll remember, for instance, that in the fall of 2017, we explored the first four chapters of that letter in a series called Anchored in the Gospel. In fact, in your worship program, you'll pull out and you'll see a uh, a summary of that uh, that Tyler Mitchell and others have helped us put together. And I hope that that will be useful to you as you do a little review and catch up, Anchored in the Gospel. In the fall of 2018, less than a year ago, we examined the next four chapters of Romans, chapters five to eight, in a series called Transformed by the Gospel. Anchored in the Gospel, Transformed by the Gospel. And I think that those middle chapters of Romans uh, contain some of the most essential biblical teaching on living the Christian life. They explain the pattern, they explain the power of following Jesus. And uh, you have a summary of that here in your worship program. Take and put in a prominent place for your review and your study. Now this summer we're circling back to Romans in a series called Called to the Gospel. And for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to be journeying through Romans chapters 9 through 11. And this represents some of the densest chapters of Paul's letter and some of the most misunderstood. At first, at first glance, they can also appear to be some of the more distant from our own lived experience. Now, to be honest, I am somewhat intimidated as we approach this series, and that's for multiple reasons. For instance, we're dealing with big theological questions, like what's the place of ethnic Israel in the plan of God? We're dealing with complicated history. How has the coming of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, changed how God relates with people, and how has it stayed the same? What is the place of the Old Testament law? It it was offered as a blessing to God's people and yet felt like, experienced as almost a curse. To be honest, it'd be very easy to skip over these chapters and to say, you know, these chapters are a bit too difficult. They they seem a bit abstract. Most people are going to struggle to understand what they mean and why they matter. Plus, these thicker sections of Scripture, they might be somewhat less appealing for listeners. So, preacher, just make a few drive-by comments, explain why we're skipping them, and move right along to the very practical next section of Romans. But I can't do that. We can't do that. And here's why. Because we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful to us. It has immense value for a follower of Jesus. We can't just pick and choose the sections of the whole counsel of God that seem most palatable to us. In addition, Paul wrote this as one letter, 
And if Paul thought what we find in Romans 9 to 11 to be of high importance, then we ought to think that too. These are central chapters for us and for our journey. And this summer, in the next six weeks or so, we're going to tackle them. By the way, you can look forward in 2020 to the last section, section 4, beginning in Romans 12 to the end of the letter. I can't wait. You know, despite the challenge before us, Romans 9 to 11, I believe, have the potential to develop in us an awe of God's plan and a gratitude for how he has included us. So I hope that you anticipate this challenging but rewarding section of scripture for us this summer. Here's a brief summary of 9, 10, 11 from one of our spiritual forefathers, Alva J. McLean. Chapter 9, you can write this down. The absolute sovereignty of God in election. Chapter 9, election. Chapter 10, the moral responsibility seen in man's rejection. Chapter 10, rejection. Chapter 11, the final purpose of God seen in reception. Those called to himself. Chapter 9, election. Chapter 10, rejection. Chapter 11, reception. So in light of that, let's begin with chapter 8. That's strange, you say. Uh, I thought we were looking at chapter 9 and following in this series. We are, but we have to understand our context in order to, to sense the mood and the gravity that we encounter in chapter 9. Chapter 8, if you remember, uh, at the end of that, Paul reaches this crescendo of sorts about the security and the victory of all who belong to Jesus Christ. For everyone who's been saved, the eternal love of God is certain. Do you believe that? For everyone saved, the eternal love of God is certain. Here's how Paul says it. Verse 37, Romans 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to that we say, amen. And then directly on the heels of that triumphal shout out, Paul comes to an unexpected screeching halt at the beginning of chapter 9. Kyle's going to come up and read those 13 verses that we're looking at today. Just when we think that Paul's going to bask in the afterglow of the wonder of our experience in Christ, it's as if Paul falls over in despair because he remembers the plight of his people. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised, amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be, rec 
will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the time of our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Thank you, Kyle. As we dive into chapter 9, we see in those first verses the plight of Israel. And in particular, we see Paul's grief over his own people. Now, to our ears, as we're reading along, remember, chapter breaks were inserted later on for our benefit. They're not an original part of Scripture. Paul's lament here seems to come out of the blue. But for Paul... It's very likely that this is an emotional expression of anguish that actually lies constantly just beneath the surface in his heart. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have certain trigger topics that are often on your mind and just below the surface, and a conversation, an experience, the sight or sound of a person, a place that you've been, triggers an emotional response in you. Some of you know what that's like. Happens here with Paul as he speaks of his blessings in Christ and all who follow him. His heart is, is triggered by his anguish over the spiritual condition of his own people, Israel. His heart is torn. His emotions vacillate between the exhilaration of being in Christ and the almost devastation of remembering his people. Paul experiences this painful grief as he considers the plight of his people. He's thrilled about his new identity, but he remembers that those closest to him have ignored or even rejected it. It's like the person who's a believer, this might be some of you, who is always conscious of the fact that you're the only one in your family who knows Christ. Or the only one of a few in a larger community or, or place who knows Christ. There's this grand sense of joy in the security of your identity in Jesus Christ. You celebrate that inheritance. But there's this great sense of loss, of sadness, that few from your family, few from your relatives, few from your people share that. And some of you know this on a personal level well. But, but Paul's response here is not simply an emotive response. It's also a logical preemption. Paul's preempting what he knows is going to be said to him from some of his recipients in Rome to whom this letter is addressed, a church full of Gentiles and some Jews as well. Some of them undoubtedly are going to wonder about the future of the Jewish people and about the trustworthiness of the promises of God. But what about Israel, they'll say? Does God still have a place for his chosen people? And even more foundational, what about God's promises? If God's promises don't endure for Israel, then on what basis can we believe that they're going to endure for us, Gentiles who've been saved by grace? Can the promises of God be trusted? And that question lingers through all three chapters of Romans 9 to 11. 
Paul, in these first few verses of Romans 9, insists upon his own trustworthiness, his own integrity, and then he bears his soul of, of great anguish, of, of unceasing anguish and sorrow. Paul shows something about his heart, his ache for his people. And who are those people? Verse 3 says, Paul describes them as my people, my brothers, those of my own flesh. And by that he means his physical, ethnic heritage. The, the ideas of lineage, of biology. It's not about skin coloration, it's not about social status. The, the NIV's race there, I think, is a poor translation. The category is ethnicity. In his sorrow, in his anguish, Paul goes so far as to wish, if it were possible, and it's not, that he would be cut off, separated from God, cast away from those who are in Christ, if only his fellow Jews could experience what he has. Reconciliation with God, identity in Christ. Paul can hardly stand the thought of his own salvation and the alienation of his people. He's delighted that he's been called to reach the Gentiles, and many have responded. But he's torn up inside at what has happened or not happened with his fellow Jews. Paul's not the first leader who felt this. About 1,500 years before, Moses felt something similar. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but, but now I'll go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. If not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses is willing to throw himself before the wrath of God for the sake of his people. And so is Paul. Why? Because Paul knew that his people were unique in the plan of God. We see why in verses 4 and 5. The privileges that Israel has from God. He lists them here. Adoption, they were selected by God to be his treasured offspring. Glory, they were the people who saw the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God in the cloud. Covenants. Binding covenants that God had made with their forefathers, Abraham and Moses and David. The law, they were the people who had received the law given by God. Worship, they were the ones who had a temple pattern of how people were supposed to rightly approach God. Promises, all throughout the Old Testament, promises pointing to the Messiah and his deliverance for the Jews. Verse 5, the patriarchs, not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but, but Moses and Joshua and, and Samuel and David, all of whom pointed to the Messiah, the one who would validate them as a people and the one who would deliver them from their enemies. Paul speaks of the privileges of Israel. We might illustrate it like this. Uh, imagine that there's a test on the subject of, of knowing and loving and obeying the Creator God. And all of humanity has been assigned to this test. All of humanity will take this test, but most of humanity hasn't studied the material. In fact, most of humanity doesn't even have the material to study. 
most of humanity isn't even interested in studying the material for the test. But the Jewish people, Israel, they have received the material. They've received it in pristine form. They've received regular tips about how to study the material. They have been continually counseled about how important this material is. And to top things off, every Israelite has been given the material as an open book exam for when the test comes. How many of you like open book tests? If you've ever taken a test, it's a godsend. Paul says, all of this has been like an open book test material for you, Israel. And you should pass this test with flying colors. And yet we're going to see in these chapters what this open book actually did for them. Paul piles up here this list of privileges, this list of benefits for his fellow Jews to remind them that he's not indifferent. He's not detached from his own people, people from his own lineage. He's passionate about their well-being. He's passionate about their privileges and their opportunities. I find it interesting here that Paul doesn't use the word Jew in this passage and rarely uses it in this whole section. Again and again, he uses the word Israel or Israelites. Why? One of the foremost New Testament scholars wrote on Romans and evangelical Doug Moo puts it like this. Paul's no longer looking at Jews from the perspective of the Gentiles and their relationship to the Gentiles. He's looking at them from the perspective of salvation history and their relationship to God and his promises to them. Israelites is not a mere political or nationalistic designation. It's a religiously significant and honorific title. He's speaking of their spiritual benefits. I would add here as we begin these three chapters that using the word nation or the nation of Israel actually creates a lot of problems. Too often we conflate that phrase with the modern Israeli state founded in 1948. Better for us to understand uh, the Jewish people or ethnic Israel here. And that's what Paul means when he refers to them. That's not the only curious word here. There's another one that we see in verses 4 and 5. It's the word theirs. And that's not what we would expect. Paul's speaking of the Jewish people. What would we expect? Ours. He's a Jew after all. And yet when highlighting all of the privileges, Paul refers again and again to theirs. Why is that? I'm not sure. But I'm inclined to believe that Paul's here making a distinction between those who have received all of the privileges of Israel and have embraced the Messiah as Savior and Lord and those who have received all of the privileges of Israel and have rejected the Messiah as Savior and Lord. All of them have divine privileges, Paul says. But not all of them, not even most of them have taken advantage of it. They don't know Yahweh, the covenant God, in a personal saving way. To put it another way, Paul has a nuanced patriotism as a Jew. He's emotionally, he's relationally attached to these people who have a common history and a common background. 
But at the same time, he could express, he could confront directly their own failings. And, and that's a model for us today, even in our very different cultural, very different civic environment. Uh, we're all just finishing a, a week of celebrating our country's founding. And last Sunday, we gave special recognition for that. And thanks to God for the privileges we have to live in this country. Of all peoples, we have been blessed abundantly materially and given freedoms that most of the world can only imagine. God has been incredibly gracious to these United States of America and to all of us who live here. We're an imperfect union, but we are a privileged one in so many ways. But our recognition of those privileges should always recognize where they come from ultimately, that's from God, and where our shortcomings are, and there are many. It doesn't negate the wonder, the, the privilege of our country, but it does make us clear-eyed. Many of you are familiar with the phrase expat. An expat is someone who's currently living outside of their native country. How many of you have lived, say, two months or more outside of this country? Raise your hand. Oh, wow, good number of you. Expat living influences how you view your own country and, and your own people even. On the one hand, you realize the blessings that you have and sometimes that you miss, particular customs, cultural joys, and so forth. And in the case of Americans, we, we realize the unique religious liberties that we have and our founding ideals and our freedom of movement and individual opportunities and ordered government and material blessings and the list goes on. Letitia and I lived for a decade outside of the United States and I think in large part because of that, we thank God more for our American heritage because of that experience. On the other hand, when you live as an expat, you, you also realize some of the shortcomings of your own country and people, maybe in a unique way. You see sometimes how patriotism can become arrogance, or prosperity can become addicting, or how certain freedoms can be viewed as a birthright, or how populism can become anti-other, anti-foreigner. Sometimes you see your own country loyalty becoming a, a needless obstacle to the gospel. Sometimes our chosen identity can impede our pursuit of the Great Commission. I would submit to you that Paul's an expat. Paul grew up as a Jew outside of ancient Israel here, and he's writing to these cosmopolitan residents of the capital city, Rome. And so he could speak with this healthy nuance about his own identity. He could praise the benefits of his own heritage as a Jew, but he, but he saw the ways in which that very heritage could blind his own people, even spiritually. We'll see that shortly. We, we can learn a lot from Paul's patriotism, his own self-conception as a Jew. Paul thought of himself first as belonging to God, and that made him the best kind of Jew. Paul said, remember in Philippians chapter 3, all of the ways in which his status as an individual and as a Jew uh, gave him social benefits, gave him privileges. But he realized that if I don't have Jesus Christ, they don't amount to much. 
Maybe most relevant here, Paul is in agony over the spiritual condition of his people because so many of them didn't know God in a saving, personal way. And he felt special responsibility for them. He felt a moral burden, a a relational obligation because of his ethnic connection to his own people. This is personal for Paul. Do you feel that for your own people? Those of your ethnic background or maybe more broadly, those who share your American identity? who share your culture and your language and your heritage, maybe in your own family, do you feel a special responsibility that they would know the one true God through Jesus Christ? And does your emotion, does your witness show that? Paul did. Paul felt that. And Paul serves as a model for us here. Beginning in verse 6, we move into the promises of God. And this might be the most important verse in the entire section. It's it's a hinge to this passage, and it's actually a preview to the next three chapters. Paul gives us his grand thesis and also gives us an abiding principle. First, the thesis. Verse 6, God's promises don't fail. God's promises don't fail. God's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. And for the next three chapters, Paul, like a good defense attorney, defends the integrity of God. God can be trusted. He hasn't forgotten Israel. He hasn't reneged on Israel. And he won't renege on any of you Gentiles who have trusted him. God's working out his plan just as he intended for his people. That's the thesis. What about the principle? Here it is. Not all from Israel are Israel. Write that down if you would. Not all from Israel are Israel. Not all who are ethnically descended from Jacob, or Israel as he's called in Genesis. Not all who have the cultural status of the chosen people. Not all of them belong to God as true Israelites. Now there's a lot to unpack here, and Paul spends the rest of our passage today and even beyond to do so. But remember the thesis and the principle in Romans 9.6. The thesis... God's promises don't fail. The principle, not all from Israel, are Israel. Okay, so who's Israel? Back in Paul's day, it was commonly assumed that if you were physically descended from Jacob, from Israel, then you were Israel. It was only those who consciously refused their inheritance, who were apostate, who, who scorned their heritage and their belonging, who weren't. In short, born a Jew, always a Jew in God's eyes. Unless you opted out, you were in. But Paul looks at that and says, wrong. That understanding's flawed here. Having the right lineage, the right father, doesn't guarantee that you belong to the chosen patriarch of God, namely Abraham. You can't go around saying, Jacob is my daddy, and you're good to go. At best, it depends, and we'll soon see upon whom it depends. One of our excellent study Bibles, and Greg mentioned how blessed we are in the English-speaking world with them, the ESV study Bible says this, Even though many Jews have failed to believe, God's promise to them has not failed. 
For there was never a promise that every Jewish person would be saved. It was never the case that all the physical children of Abraham were truly part of the people of God. It wasn't about having the right bloodlines, the right ethnic heritage. John Stott, famous British pastor, said it like this, there have always been two Israels. The physical descended from Israel, Jacob, on the one hand, and the spiritual progeny on the other. And God's promises are dressed to the latter, who have received it. Physical Israel and spiritual Israel are not mutually exclusive, but they're also not identical either. And that's Paul's point. So who belongs to spiritual Israel? How do you become a child of Abraham? Who's the source of making this birth happen? Paul turns to these questions, and it's helpful for us to see his conclusion in advance and then his evidence. Paul argues that belonging to God's true spiritual people has always been based on God's gracious and sovereign call and not on ethnic identity. Or if you want it more memorably, what counts is grace, not race. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will make you belong to God. And that includes your own blood or your own ethnic heritage or what anyone can do to you. There's no amount of religious observance, no amount of moral living, no amount of generous giving, no family heritage that is gonna get you in with God. And that's a message that we, a continent away and 2,000 years later, need to remember. How do we know that? Well, because Paul said the same thing. At the beginning of Romans, in chapter 2, he says this, a person's not a Jew who's one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Paul's not saying it's not only those who are Israel, of Israel that are Israel, but he's saying it's not all those who are of Israel that are Israel. God's promise doesn't fail. It's only fulfilled in the Israel within Israel. Okay, Paul, prove it. And Paul, good lawyer, anticipates the cross-examination and begins. Two examples beginning in verse 7. First example of Isaac. Now the readers in Rome, at least some of them, would know this, but maybe we need a refresher. Here's the cliff notes of the background. Abraham had a wife, Sarah. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Seemed to stifle God's promise and her desires. So she connived with Abraham to sleep with her servant so that there could be offspring. Her servant, Hagar, got pregnant, bore a son named Ishmael. Later, after it was humanly impossible for Sarah to get pregnant, she got pregnant and she bore a son, Isaac. That son, Isaac, is the child of the promise of God. And what is that promise? What God said to Abraham in the first place. I have chosen you and you will be blessed so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Ishmael was a physical son, but he was not the child of the promise to Abraham. Two sons here, only one 
God's special blessing. In other words, physical lineage is not enough. Not convinced? Not convinced because Ishmael's mom wasn't a Jew. She was from Egypt. Try this one on for size, Paul says, the example of Jacob. Two more sons, Jacob and Esau. Same father, same mother, same conception. They're twins. So a totally level playing field. Verse 11, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God chose. And contrary to the custom, God decided that the older son would serve the younger son. So, so God decided the birth order and then he flipped the script just to show that he was in control of his plan and his purpose and his people. It's not about bloodlines. It's not about birth order. It's not even about behavior. God chooses. In fact, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, Malachi 1, in verse 13, when he says, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. It's, a, it's an idiom from ancient times, a kind of hyperbole. The word hate there is probably not as strong as we read it, but the contrast is intentional. I have chosen Jacob, and I have rejected Esau. I'm God. I can choose if I want to. Paul's saying, though, that God's not just asserting this to, to prove his privilege, but to make a point about his plan. Verse 11 at the end, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls. In other words, God chooses in advance those who will be included as children of the promise. Now, that may bewilder us. That may even bother us. Maybe it does both for you. Our entire lives, especially as Americans, are built on accomplishment and advantage. Be all that you can be. The sky's the limit. You control your destiny. But this passage cuts the legs out from under that. God's in the driver's seat because God's in control. It's his plan. It's his purpose because he's God. Ah, uh, you say, there's got to be a better explanation than that. One that I like. One that seems fair. It's always frustrating when the Bible gets in the way of our theology, isn't it? Many people have tried to construct a way that makes more sense or gives us more say. Tim Keller writes, some people argue that God simply foresees who's going to accept and who's going to reject God's way. But verse 12 here reinforces the point by saying that the blessing comes not by works, but by him who calls. <laughs> There's God showing up again uninvited. But the point's inescapable. The contrasting destinies of Jacob and Esau were not simply seen in advance by God, but were also caused by him. That's the difference between foreknowledge and election. And this passage teaches election. You can say you don't understand it. You can say you don't like it. You just can't say it's not in the Bible. Election does cause us some heartburn, some difficulties. But, but to deny it raises even more problems. 
Here's one. Without election, the central teaching of the Bible that we've been saved by grace alone, not by works, is compromised. If the difference between an unbeliever and a believer lies in the character of the believer, more humble, more teachable, then he gets the credit for being saved. But he doesn't because God's central. Election was even taught by Jesus himself. Jesus said, I know those I have chosen. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either the whole or in part, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable, Stott writes. Here's what the old ancient leader Augustine said 1,700 years ago. God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God is the prime spiritual mover. Always has been, always will be. So far, we've just begun to explore this dense jungle that is Romans 9 to 11. And I'm sure that you have questions and, and points to ponder here. So do I. There's more to come. And I think it will come to enlighten our understanding and to encourage our hearts. Today is a bit of a movie trailer that shows an introduction for what the whole movie is about. And as we move ahead, I'd like to conclude by offering us a few pastoral practical comments. Number one, if the sovereignty of God and the election of his people bothers you, don't keep reading in Romans 9. Because God and Paul double down there and your objections might not hold up. There is such a thing as the liberation of surrender. And sometimes when God says that, we should say, okay, you win. Number two, God's sovereignty never takes away from human responsibility. We're going to see that again and again, even in this section. Peoples and individuals are accountable before God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, uh, a good Jew, a Pharisee, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, John 3, 7 and 8. Nicodemus had a response to give. Number three, the proper response is repentance and faith. Just because you have religious background, just because you have great biblical understanding, doesn't guarantee you faith. How do we know that? Look at the Jewish people. Number four, salvation is a gift from God, as is faith. Saved people don't take credit. Here's what Alva J. McLean said, unsaved men are responsible for their condition. Saved men are not to be proud of their condition. They're grateful. Five, the gospel is offered to all. Paul gets really passionate, especially in chapter 10, that the gospel must be offered to all as widely as possible. The sovereignty of God does not inhibit our witness, but fuels it and is the peace as we bear witness to others. 
Sixth and finally, the mercy of God is cause for celebration. Why? Because believers realize that we've been chosen apart from our works. That we too deserve the wrath of God, but the grace of God has intervened for us. The shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone. The shock is that he extends it to anyone. And wonder upon wonders, that's what God does. And that is good news worth sharing. God's children are the descendants of his promise to Abraham, not those of Abraham's flesh. Or said more memorably, it's not who you are or what you do. It's whose you are and what he's done. Let's pray. God, you stand higher, farther above us. Your plan is greater and sometimes bigger than we can understand. But wonder upon wonders, your grace is rich and free because you've paid for it. Thank you, God, that you have made us valuable in your sight, that your gospel is good news and that you've given us the privilege not only to belong to you, but to bear witness to you, to the nations. Thank you for your good work in our hearts and for our opportunity to testify to others of that kind of good, gracious, glorious God. Thank you for your promises and thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.